Well, hello. Welcome to Con 406. Uh, my name is Brian Salenza. I'm a senior software engineer with, uh, working on AWS AppMesh. Uh, I'm joined today by Christopher Lane, who's an enterprise architect at Chick-fil-A. Uh, and together, we'll do a deep dive into application-level network management and observability with AppMesh. Uh, we'll start with just a brief introduction to AppMesh. We assume most of you here are probably already a little bit familiar with it. If you're not, I'll try to bring you up to speed. Talk a little bit about the design intentions, why we built it, how we built it, what were the intentions behind building it. We will go through a journey uh, using AppMesh to kind of further illustrate those points, um, kind of dive deeper and deeper into this, uh, describing the capabilities, talking about how you use it, et cetera. Uh, and then finally, we will show you AppMesh in action along with uh, Amazon Elastic Kubernetes service uh, and how it's used at Chick-fil-A. And then if we've timed ourselves appropriately, you'll have some time at the end to ask us questions. If you're super interested in AppMesh and you want to see other things, um, these are some related breakouts that you can check out. I believe most of the sessions are probably already done by now, but of course you can check these out online as well. And definitely encourage you to check out what interests you. So let's start with a brief introduction to AppMesh. AppMesh is a control plane for a service mesh that provides four essential capabilities. The first is consistent communications management, that is, allowing you to create communication paths between your microservices. The second is complete visibility. If you have microservices that are communicating with each other, inevitably you're going to want to know how they're performing, things like metrics, logs, tracing, et cetera, and you want those to be unified. And so that's another intention that we provide. And then, of course, things tend to fail from time to time. So building in failure isolation and protection measurements uh, are something that you can do through our APIs. And then finally, your software is going to change over time. And so being able to use AppMesh to carefully deploy and shift traffic is incredibly important for the stability of your services and the experience you provide to your customers. AppMesh works in two parts. First, you install a local proxy on your uh, ECS task or Kubernetes pod or even an EC2 instance. That proxy is Envoy Proxy, the open source project that is um, governed by CNCF. And that proxy communicates with AWS AppMesh through a bidirectional streaming gRPC service that we host and deliver and stream uh, all of the configuration that your service mesh needs directly to the proxy in real time. AppMesh was designed to scale to your services needs. Whether you're running tens or hundreds or thousands of services, AppMesh was designed to scale to that and to continue to deliver uh, configuration and distribute that in a time that is uh, very minimal to you. Let's talk about the design intentions behind AppMesh. Why did we build this and how? First, we wanted to build a service mesh with a declarative API. What I mean by that is we simply want you to state your intent, right? If you want to have a service that speaks HTTP and listens on port 80, you should be able to just state that, and we can actually make it happen for you on that local proxy installed in your environment. We wanted to create a set of APIs that had clear ownership boundaries. Service meshes can be quite large. They can, be, they can cross organizations. They can even cross companies. And so we wanted to provide a, a clear set of boundaries on those resources so that it makes sense and gives everyone the flexibility and control that they need to facilitate communication in a service mesh. Some of these resources are opinionated. Uh, we kind of think all of them are opinionated. Um, one example of that is we have this resource called a virtual service. And a virtual service is simply uh, sort of a pointer to the actual service. It is, you can think of it like an interface that you present to somebody else to call you by. Another way to think of it is a fully qualified domain name. In fact, that's basically what it is. But we also wanted our APIs and the intent behind them to have the flexibility to allow you to design your mesh in any way that you can think of. Finally, we have started to build and continue to build over time features that scale with your needs. First and foremost, you should be able to make the communication paths, right? Actually facilitate communication between your services. But then you're going to need some new things on top of it, things like header or path-based routing, retry policies. Um, security, TLS, uh, authentication and authorization. These are all capabilities that are either available in our preview environment today or uh, will be available soon within the next, call it six to 12 months. Let's dig into this API design a little bit. Uh, I'm gonna start with just a very sort of contrived example of three services. 
One that takes some uh, uh, traffic from the internet and then talks to two other services. Now, the intent behind these APIs is that you already have this architecture in your head for the services that you run today. You want to be able to map these cleanly to the AppMesh API resources. If you can't do that, then we probably haven't done our job correctly. So what does that look like? Well, you can, in fact, map these quite cleanly. Create a couple of virtual nodes. Virtual nodes represent the actual compute that your resources are running on. And then you create a couple of virtual services that tell your clients um, how to reach you and then point to those virtual nodes. Now, of course, this is a fantastic starting point, but inevitably you're going to want to change something. You're going to want to deploy new code, for example. And so we've also created the flexibility for you to change this mesh over time while preserving these communication paths. So let's say service B wants to deploy uh, new code. Right now, if they do that, they're deploying over an existing virtual node. There's a chance that they could see an outage or they could see some traffic disruption there. So what Service B can do is actually introduce another API resource called a virtual router, which allows them to shift traffic very carefully by single-digit percentages, if required, between the first version of Service B and the second version of Service B. All they have to do is create a new virtual node, create a virtual router in a route, and then slowly tune those traffic settings to their needs. When we talk about declaring uh, the intent on our APIs, we provide you a couple of ways to do that. Now, obviously, there are the SDKs, the CLI, um, but perhaps the most declarative portion of this would be with something like AWS CloudFormation. All existing AWS AppMesh resources are available in CloudFormation, and all future resources will be available in CloudFormation when those features launch. Another way you could do this is if you're using Kubernetes. We provide custom resource definitions um, for all of our API resources, and again, launch those with new service features. And we also provide you with an injector as well as a controller that runs in your Kubernetes cluster that will automatically create and manage these resources on your behalf. So all you have to do is kubectl apply. Now that's all great, but the most common question that we get from customers is, quite simply, where do I start? And that's a very good question. So to illustrate that, I want to walk through just a really brief journey with AppMesh. What we'll talk about is, Again, a little deeper in how you would map your existing architecture to the mesh, and I'll use an example to talk about this. Then we'll start diving into what's actually happening under the hood. What is AppMesh delivering to your proxy? How does that work? And then finally, we'll look at AppMesh in action with some live demos and some uh, more information around how Chick-fil-A uses AppMesh uh, along with EKS and a number of open source projects. So let's start with how you start. Inevitably, you're going to need to map your architecture to the mesh. And to illustrate this, I want to start with perhaps the most contrived example you can think of, which is sort of service A and service B again. Now, in this example, I'm going to use a, a sort of a commerce approach. I, I presume that we're all somewhat familiar with shopping online. We have some concept of you know, what is required for that. Um, but in this case, we just start with two simple services. We have a front-end service, which acts as sort of a web interface that customers can interact with. And that front-end service communicates with the back-end service, which is the actual business logic that's driving the application. Now, as you can imagine, that back-end service is a little bit of a monolith. Um, it hosts, for example, details pages, um, cart information, as well as the entire checkout process. And when front-end wants to talk to back-end service, they'll probably use some simple, fully qualified domain name, DNS, uh, like backend.com.local. So where do we start with this? Well, we can start quite simply by just, again, doing the same thing that I showed you just a few slides ago, which is we can map the existing AppMesh API resources on top of these. The team that owns front-end service would create a front-end virtual node so that they can get all of the dynamic configuration that they need delivered to their proxy to communicate with the back-end service. And then the team that owns the back-end service creates two new resources. The first is their back-end virtual node, of course, which has listener information on it, service discovery information on it, perhaps health checking, uh, maybe TLS encryption, for example. And then they also create a virtual service. Now, as I mentioned before, the virtual service you can think of like a pointer to the real service. Another way to think of it is like a, a, a way to match an outgoing request based off of that host name that you saw earlier. But one of the things I mentioned earlier was we wanted to create API resources that had very clear ownership boundaries. What does this look like? Okay, this one's quite simple. For an end team owns a single virtual node, and a back end team owns their virtual service and back end virtual node. 
And they can enforce this through things like IAM uh, resource-based policies or tag-based policies, whatever suits your specific style. And you can enforce that such that neither team can really conflict with each other on how this is configured. Now, of course, we talked before that front-end service needs to talk to back-end service through this backend.com.local. And so to facilitate that, the backend team just needs to call their backend virtual service backend.com.local. That's what they can name that resource, and we will automatically facilitate that request and map it to the appropriate physical compute that the customer's running. Now, as I mentioned before, the backend's a little bit of a monolith, and of course, we are living in a world where microservice architectures are rapidly taking off and show a lot of promise for all sorts of things from resilience to security, et cetera. And so the backend team doesn't want to always have this one backend, right? They want to split this out, and they probably want to split it out in particular subject domains. So how would they do this? Well, they have this backend virtual service. The front-end team is calling them by backend.com.local. But they could also create three more virtual services, say one for each subject domain that they're interested in splitting out. And so they could create a virtual service for details.com.local, for cart.com.local, and for checkout.com.local, and quite simply point all of these virtual services to the same virtual node. And then all the front end team has to do is change their application for when they're calling the details page to call details.com.local, cart.com.local, et cetera. Many of you may recognize this as the strangler pattern, um, and that is essentially what we're trying to facilitate with this capability of having multiple virtual services point to a single or a set of virtual nodes. So again, what does the resource ownership look like here? Still pretty much the same, not much new. But of course, inevitably, the backend team does want to start splitting these things out, and they want to do so in such a way that the front-end team doesn't need to know that they are splitting out you know, one of these components into a smaller microservice in the future. And so they can do this, again, by just adding that virtual router to this um, checkout virtual service in this case, and then start with that virtual router directing 100% of its traffic to just the backend virtual node. That's step one. Now step two is create a new virtual node, split out the code that's required for the checkout service, deploy it with that proxy configured for that checkout virtual node, and then connect it to the route. Start traffic shifting. If something goes wrong, you can always back out. Rollbacks happen. But inevitably, you're going to roll forward because we've become confident, we've done our testing, and at some point, we're no longer directing traffic to that backend virtual node. Now all of the traffic has been shifted to the new microservice in the checkout virtual node, and the front-end team may not have even known about it. They may not have seen anything other than perhaps some reduced latency because now it's a smaller microservice with a single purpose. They can, of course, continue this trend with the other uh, two services that they're running, and now you have a full set of microservices completely independent of each other, and the back-end service, the monolith, is gone. And of course, the ownership boundary is still essentially the same. But now that we've split all microservices, we don't need one giant team managing this. And so the back-end team could just as easily break themselves down or spin up new teams and just simply change the ownership on these resources such that now they're all independent teams that can operate without knowledge of each other necessarily. They can focus on the business problem that they're individually trying to solve. And they can do that by just changing the IAM policies, changing the tags on the resources if they're using more of an ABAC approach. It's really up to you how you actually construct this and define those boundaries, but we want to create the flexibility for you to do that. So what's actually happening when you're doing this stuff? Well, to start, we should probably take a little bit more of a simplified view into this. It'd be difficult to talk about what's going on with um, four, technically four different services here. And so let's simplify this view a little bit. Let's start with just the path from front end to the cart. And to take this down another step, we're going to focus on just the virtual nodes themselves. And I'll talk about why in just a second, but what you really need to know is that AtMesh is really just about point-to-point -point communication. When you create a virtual service and a virtual router and a route, there are no resources being provisioned inside of AWS. There's no load balancers, there's no routers, there's nothing. 
Is, these are all sort of fictitious resources that really just result in us vending the appropriate configuration to the, the Envoy clients that are talking to you such that they know how to route to wherever your compute is hosted. So you can think about this again as just front end to cart. It is essentially point to point communication. Or you can go a little bit further and say that it's actually just a collection of uh, individual sources and destinations that need to route to each other. And those sources and destinations are probably identifiable by unique IP addresses. And really, when we get down to it, it's just a set of envoys that are talking to each other. And those envoys are proxying your application's code. Now, because these envoys are deployed and we're distributing the configuration to each, each different envoy that's acting as the client for front end is making its own individual decision for how to route requests to the destination that it's trying to get to, in this case, the cart. So essentially, service meshes are really just about distributed decision making, but centralized control. That's it. So now we have our communication path from front end to the cart. And where AppMesh's role is here is we want to facilitate that communication. And we want to let you focus on how the mesh is mapped and then also how to actually conduct your business and, and instrument your business logic. But how does AppMesh actually configure all of these? Well, if you're interested in how AppMesh itself works and how we're able to distribute and do this at scale, um, this is where you should check out Con 323. Um, that's where we actually talk about our architecture in depth, describe some of the scaling challenges and security challenges that we've solved. Um, and so that's a really good one to check out if you're interested in learning about actually how we do it. But if you're interested in seeing um, specifically how we configure an Envoy, well, that's where those other two resources actually start to come in really handy. So let's illustrate this. We have our um, front-end virtual node, which I'll represent here as a single envoy. And we have um, a set of envoys or endpoints that are the possible destinations that could be routed to. And how does this actually manifest an envoy configuration? And why is that important? Well, I'll start with the second question first. The second question is of, of why this is important is that Envoy generates a ton of statistics, metrics, and logs, and tracing information that allows you to observe and debug and diagnose issues with communication paths in your mesh. And so knowing what these things are in Envoy configuration can be actually quite informative for understanding the statistics that it generates and understanding how your mesh is actually operating. So let's quickly look at how each of these manifests as resources. The cart virtual node uh, and the, the set of possible endpoints in Envoy is actually represented by a cluster. And of course, cluster seems quite native, right? It's quite intuitive for us to understand as engineers and people who work in this stuff all day. It's a set of endpoints that can be routed to that all have some common configuration and of course, common software that they're running. The virtual service is a virtual host in Envoy configuration. Uh, if you're familiar with Envoy configuration, this will make a lot of sense to you. If you aren't familiar with Envoy configuration at all, but you are familiar with something like Apache, um, virtual host is essentially the same concept there. It is a matching rule on a host header. Um, if it's HTTP 1, it's a host. If it's HTTP 2, it's actually an authority header. They're essentially the same thing. So what is the virtual router in the route? Uh, that one's quite straightforward. They're actually just routes in Envoy configuration. They map quite cleanly. But I think what's more important than understanding what each of these resources map to right now is understanding how the actual request travels from one end to the other. And so let's start with a simple request that's issued from the application on the front end Envoy. It reaches the Envoy, and the Envoy inspects it. In this case, we're assuming it's HTTP. And so the Envoy is going to match the um, host header or the authority header and see if it matches one of the existing virtual services that we've distributed to it. In this case, front end is requesting cart.com.local, so it knows how to match that. And once it has a match, it can consult its routing table for in additional information on how to route it, such as a path-based route or header or cookie information. And then, of course, it has an action associated with that. So in this case, we know we need to go to some endpoint within the cart cluster. And then perhaps the most interesting point of Envoy is it will automatically perform load balancing for you and pick one of those endpoints factoring in things like um, round-robin uh, load balancing or uh, retry information that it may need to know about if the request fails. But the important thing here is, again, distributed decision-making centralized control. 
And so each of those front-end envoys are going to make independent decisions of how to route based off of the information that you provide to the App Mesh APIs. But that brings up a good question. Um, how do we know what the proxy is actually doing? How can we observe this? I mentioned before that we have a ton of statistics that are offloaded from Envoy um, that AppMesh actually um, instruments and decorates so that you know how they map to the API resources. And to understand this, we actually need to go one level deeper. So we're going to focus just on one Envoy now. And we're going to focus on the lowest level, in, or at least the lowest level abstraction that we want to talk about in, in this topic. Um, to talk about how these local decisions are audited, logged, measured, and debugged. To start, your Envoy is, of course, running in an ECS task or an EKS pod or an EC2 instance, and it's facilitating both the egress and the ingress traffic, so it's bidirectional. You, of course, have some application code that's in there that is your actual business logic, and the Envoy's proxying that for you. Now, you probably want to see some metrics off of this. You want to know what your latency is, what your faults are, how many errors have you seen, et cetera. And for that, Envoy generates um, statsd-compliant metrics that can be scraped and offloaded to an additional container. Um, in this example, I'm showing Amazon CloudWatch metrics. There are a number of other ways that you can do this because it's all, again, just statsd, so it's quite simple to integrate. Now, something's inevitably going to go wrong. You're going to see some 500s. You're going to want to know what's going on. And so you can also attach um, the X-ray agent to Envoy as well. And um, we are actually in the process right now of finishing up our upstream um, contribution of AWS X-ray to Envoy. Until then, you can actually use one of our vended Envoy images, which has this integration in it already. Uh, but the uh, upstream version in mainline Envoy should be available within the next month or two, or the next release. So now we can trace information. What about logs? Well, that's actually taken care of for you already. Most of you who run in AWS um, already are familiar with how to offload logs. If you're using ECS or EKS, it's quite simple. There are existing logging drivers to do all of that. Of course, you want to include your Envoy and any other sidecars in there that, that you're interested in gathering logs from. Um, but if you're using an EC2 instance, you could use something like the CloudWatch agent, for example. So we've talked about this at the bottom level. Let's start working our way back up. When we start zooming out, we can start to generate a unified view of all of these communication paths, powered by AppMesh and Envoy showing you how your mesh is actually mapped from A to B or A to C. And when you have all of these things instrumented in here, you can also visualize this with something like X-Ray again. And funny enough, it looks exactly like the diagram I just showed you, because once you have all of that tracing information offloaded from your envoys, you can get this actual unified live map of how your service mesh is deploying. And then, of course, things like metrics and logs, those come quite naturally to all of us, I assume. Uh, and so building something like a CloudWatch dashboard becomes very simple once you have understood how all of these uh, uh, statistics coming off the Envoy configured by AppMesh work. So what does this look like in action? Well, to demonstrate that, I want to invite Christopher Lane up to the stage to talk about Chick-fil-A and their use of AppMesh and EKS. Christopher? Thank you, Brian. Uh, again, my name is Christopher Lane. I'm an enterprise architect with Chick-fil-A. And I wanted to start, start my talk today by talking a little bit about who Chick-fil-A is. So Chick-fil-A is a privately owned quick service restaurant based in Atlanta, Georgia. Our corporate purpose is to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and have a positive impact on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. And I think the content of this talk today hits both those purposes. EKS and AppMesh have allowed us to be good stewards of our AWS resources, allowed our engineering teams to focus on building differentiating applications for our customers and for our operators, and that ensures that everyone who comes into our restaurant has a positive experience. We have 2,400 restaurants, mostly in the US, but we've recently opened in Canada and the UK. We have the highest per restaurant sales in the QSR industry and more than 15% of revenue flowing through digital channels. And I'm gonna to focus today on one of those digital channels, 
our Chick-fil-A One app and the backend services that power it. Chick-fil-A One continues to be an industry favorite. We've hit number one in the App Store a few, few times, which we're quite proud of. And our traffic looks kind of pro probably what you think it, it looks like. There's a, a lull sort of right before the breakfast rush, where we're about uh, 4,500 requests per minute. And then it spikes right at lunchtime at about 45,000 requests per minute. And what I'm showing here through here is the API requests through one tier. Um, this happens to be my birthday, shamelessly, although I don't think I put the actual day on it. Um, but it, it, our traffic is pretty spiky. It increases about an order of magnitude over the course of the day. And this sort of traffic pattern is kind of ideally served by an EKS and app mesh system, our ecosystem. So what does our architecture look like? At a high level, we have our services running in EKS. They are largely backed by DynamoDB. We're streaming the DynamoDB data directly into RDS for real-time processing jobs and analytics. We're also streaming all of that data into our data lake, where we can do advanced analytics jobs, including running Redshift tasks and Spark jobs to provide deeper insight in for the business. What I'd like to focus on, though, is that we have a decentralized team model. So we like our teams to be as independent as they possibly can be, and that means we have clusters per account, per region, and per environment. So we have lots of clusters to manage and maintain. And if you've read anything about our edge architecture, you know that we're running a Kubernetes cluster in every single one of our stores, so 2,400 clusters. So in general, we have a lot of clusters to manage and maintain. So with that goal in mind, what we built was what we call our Kubernetes common platform. Now we think of this as a distribution of Kubernetes, just like you'd have a distribution of Linux. And it's an opinionated but composable set of components that build a production platform on top of Kubernetes. So in the cloud, our base K8 layer is Amazon EKS. The layer on top of that is the Sys layer. It's composed of components like external DNS, the ALB ingress controller, and the EFS provisioner. It wasn't until recently, our Kubedim was recently, up until recently was included in that. We're since gonna replace that with uh, the IAM roles for service accounts. Um, and these two, sys, the sys and case layers combined are the two most stable layers. These are the components that our engineering leads typically do not change. The layer on top of that is the core layer. It's included, it includes things like external secrets for managing secrets within the cluster, Argo CD for doing GitOps processes, Ambassador for north-south routing into the cluster, the Prometheus and Grafana stack, and then AppMesh and Flagger. And we're gonna be focusing heavily this talk on Amazon EKS and AppMesh. So why did we pick Amazon EKS? Well, the first three are largely why everyone picks Kubernetes. Declarative configuration, self-healing, and auto-scaling. But in the cloud, Amazon EKS also decreases our operational burden. We're very familiar with the, the burden of running Kubernetes ourselves based on our edge experience. And so being able to have the, the maintenance of the control plane taken away from us by EKS is uh, a, a very big pro for us um, and decreases our operational burden. Why AppMesh? Well, when we were asking our engineering teams, uh, one of the main things that came up over and over again was the need for canary deployments. And if we look around the EKS ecosystem, we found that AppMesh, with a few tools layering on top of that, allowed us a straightforward way to provide that feature for our AppMesh. So that ability to do a simple deployment and provide value to our engineering teams is a big plus for us. So a simple deployment and adding value. It works across multiple AWS services, as Brian mentioned, and we do run other workloads and other tasks on different services other than EKS, so that was also a big plus. And then the, the advanced deployment patterns that I mentioned and the advanced monitoring that Brian just mentioned. So what we built is a CLI, actually, that composes all of the KCP layers and orchestrates everything. And what I'd like to do now is give a quick demo of that actually spinning up a cluster 
and what it looks like. Okay, so what we have here, uh, hopefully everyone can see that. Um, and again, I, I mentioned that KCP is just a simple CLI. We're actually um, want to open source this project uh, may, potentially as soon as Q1 of next year. Um, so hopefully this is something that is available to everyone. If there's interest in this, please come talk to me afterwards. Um, that'll allow us to uh, prioritize this. Um, but out of the box, you get some help. You see there's just three, three simple commands that most people use, KCP create, which is the one we're about to run, uh, delete, a little scary, but we do need to delete clusters every now and then, deploy, which deploys the syscore and app component, components to EKS, and we'll do a demo of that in just a minute. And then there's a little version that just spits out the version. But what we want to run today or right now is the create command. Um, there's a few options here, uh, and I'm just going to bring us back to the top real quick. But the command we'd like to run is kcp create, and we don't need to update the knuckles in this case. Now, if I hit enter here, um, this would actually spin up a cluster. Now, spinning up a cluster takes about 15-ish minutes. So instead of us all sitting here and looking at a spinner, <laughs> I'm just going to show a quick demo of this. I ran this about 2 o'clock, um, and so uh, we'll just see the output real quick, sped up, um, instead of watching, sitting here all for 15 minutes. But um, you can see it'll just tell us it's not going to update the knuckles, and then it'll create the cluster. Um, and this should, yep. So yeah, so it took about 16 minutes total. Um, and this is exactly where we left off here. So I haven't touched anything since 2 p.m. So let's take a look at what we have. Um, we've just deployed the K8 layer. So the only pods we really have right now are in our um, cube system namespace. So I'll take a look at what's in there. Oop. There we go. So you can see these running about three hours. So right around 2 p.m. Um, is when I spun um, these up. So there we go. We have a complete cluster. Um, and everything running. Okay, now that we have the base layer, what do deployments actually look like? So what I'm showing here is a high-level overview of the entire deployment. There's a lot going on here, but I'll walk through this step by step. So the first step, sort of as always, is a developer makes a commit to the app repo. There's a Jenkins job that's watching for those changes. It builds the new image and runs the test suite. And in this case, we'll assume the happy path that that test suite completed successfully. And at that point, the Jenkins job will push the image to a local ECR repo and then commit uh, the new image to a deploy branch. The next step is there's a Jenkins job watching for the changes into that deploy branch. And at this time, I'd like to talk a little bit about how we're using Customize. Now, Customize is a tool for building uh, Kubernetes manifest in a layered approach. And what it allows you to do is define, allows us to do, is define a base set of manifest files that offer sane default values for applications. And then we can just use overlays that just change what we need to for a given environment or region. And, and so apps are able to leverage the entire power of Kubernetes. They can change whatever they'd like to by introducing an app overlay. But if they just like to deploy something quickly, we've got defaults for them already ready for every single region and every single environment that we deploy to. So it, it offers a gradual introduction into uh, Kubernetes, by, but also offers all of the flex in it, flexibility that it provides. So this Jenkins job will pull all the base manifests and overlays for the specific application. Once it have all, has all those, it can build the fully qualified manifest file and commit that to the Atlas repo. Now, what we call the Atlas repo declares the entire state of our Kubernetes cluster. So we don't ever run kubectl applied directly against the cluster. 
we commit changes to the Git repo, to the Atlas, and then Argo will pull down those changes and actually commit them to the cluster, or apply them to the cluster. So once the Atlas is updated, Argo will see that change, will pull down the new manifest files, pull the new ECR images, and deploy the application. So what does this look like? And actually, all the layers above the KH layer of KCP are deployed in this exact same fashion. KCP, the CLI, the orchestration tool we've written, doesn't actually commit any of these things to the cluster either. So let's see what that looks like. Okay, so we're left here where we were before. I'm gonna get back to the top here. Uh, remember there was a deploy command, so we'll get a little help on that. So the screen's pretty big, so there's a lot. So you can see here, you can deploy um, the individual components, external secrets, Argo CD, Prometheus, Thanos. Um, you can also deploy them in groups. So you can deploy just the sys, the core, the app. You can, there's a few examples here. If you just do KCDP deploy, it will deploy everything. Um, and what's going on here is, uh, the only thing I've really done is logged into an AWS account. All the configuration that you need to run this is scraped out of the account. Um, so it's pretty straightforward. Oops, let me get back to the top again. So I just run KCP deploy, and we should see it individually go through. So it's deploying uh, the sys layers first. Um, it actually needs to deploy Argo first and foremost, but um, so it'll do that part. It needs to deploy the GitOps process, GitOps operator first. But it'll go through one by one and deploy every single layer here. So we're working our way through the ALB ingress controller, external DNS, a few other sys components that I didn't have listed there. And again, if there's interest in this tool, um, we're happy to open source it. Uh, we do need to pull out some of the uh, internal pieces, but um, it should be too big of a lift. So now we've moved on to the core pieces. We're getting Prometheus Operator and Thanos, Ambassador for North-South Routing into the cluster, AppMesh now, Flagger, and then uh, it's gonna deploy a small demo API, which we'll use in a moment. Okay, um, it's also, uh, I'm gonna stop it here, and let's take a look at what we um, have deployed now. So I'll we'll check all namespaces, so keep cuddle all. Got a few more things that are showing up here. So we can take a look at Argo's interface. So what I've done here, I'm just port forwarding um, Argo service to 8080 on my local machine. Yeah, awesome, so we see uh, lots of applications spinning up here, um, some things are out of sync, but turning green. So I'm just gonna sync the applications, all the applications. So we have a sort of an Uber application that is watching and deploying all the other applications. So it's a applications of application. So yeah, so things are starting to go green here. We'll make sure the demo app gets deployed. Ambassador we all need. Getting pretty close there. So let's also take a look now at um, Grafana. So these are just sort of the dashboards and metrics that you get out of the box. Again, I just port forwarded um, Grafana to my local machine on 3000. So we have Grafana here. Um, we, by default, you get all of the dashboards um, that you see here, so you can check out sort of the compute resources that are going on in the cluster. Um, you can see nothing much was happening until we just deployed everything here. Um, you can also check out Thanos for long-term storage. Um, these will all look the same for the time being. And we also take a look at um, things by uh, node. 
So we can check out each node here, what's going on. In addition, uh, we, can, we have a canary deployment. Now, the only um, thing that's deployed right now is the primary, so that's the only traffic. The canary doesn't have any traffic, but this will be the dashboard we take a look at momentarily. And so that's it. So I mentioned what we really wanted to get out of AppMesh um, was Canary deployments. So we're using a tool called Flagger from Weaveworks. Flagger offers or defines uh, a Canary CRD um, that automatically creates the virtual nodes, routes, and services based on a pretty straightforward Canary spec. Um, and that allows you to automate pretty smoothly Canary deployments. So what does this look like in practice? So I mentioned the demo API. This demo API is doing one thing and one thing only. It is returning its version. So it's maybe one of the most simple APIs you can think of, but extremely useful tool in this particular case. So out of the box, what, you, what we sort of have deployed is our demo API on version 1.0, and we have Flagger deployed. We haven't deployed our Canary spec yet, but as soon as we do, what Flagger will, will do, it will t detect the new Canary spec. It will copy your existing demo API deployment to a new deployment with, which it labels primary. Crucially, you have two services now. You have your existing service, which is now essentially the Canary service, and you have a new primary service. Once the uh, primary deployment is, is rolled out, then Flagger will spin up all of the app mesh components. So it will spin up the virtual service, the virtual router, and the virtual node for both the primary track, which you see on top, and the canary track, which you see on the bottom. The canary track essentially leads back to your original deployment. And the primary track on top leads to the new primary deployment. They're both on version 1.0, um, and it sets up two entries in the virtual router table. One that's 100% to the primary, and the other that is 0% initially to the canary. So within the virtual router, there are two entries, 100% to the primary service, one with 0% to the canary service. It also sets up the exact same paths for the canary, so you can do sort of interesting things there. Um, the Canary router has the exact same entries, but just with the opposite percentages. So 0% to the primary, 100% to the Canary. So this is sort of the baseline setup. What happens when we want to deploy version 2.0 of our demo API? So this is basically the same picture. I've just stripped away the Canary pieces, so we'll focus on the primary track at the top. So this is the default setting we have. Both are on version 1.0. If we deploy version 2.0 of our demo API, Flagger will detect that change. Um, it scales up the original deployment to version 2.0. Once the original deployment is at version 2.0, then it will start adjusting the weights in the router tables. So we'll do just a two-step quick canary here. We'll go from 25% to 50%. And you can also define metrics to be continuously checked to make sure that the rollout is happening the way you expected it to. Um, and if anything goes wrong, it will automatically switch the traffic back to the primary. Um, and you can also define webhooks um, that you can run load testing and all sorts of things um, on that. And we'll take a look at one of these canary, canary specs in the next deployment. But assuming everything is going well, it will continue to adjust the weight here from 25 to 50% to the canary. And that's our, we've reached our threshold now. If we reach 50% successfully, then we want to go ahead and deploy version 2 to the primary. So Flagger does a very similar process it did initially. It copies the demo deployment API specs, which are now on version 2.0, to the primary. So that will scale the primary up to 2.0. Once the primary is at 2.0, then it will adjust all the traffic back to the primary. So now we have 100% going to the primary again. And we're left with our original, uh, original 
spec just with everything on version 2.0 instead of version 1.0. So this is the exact same picture we, had, we started with. It's just that everything got upgraded to version 2.0. So what does that look like in practice? Let's do a demo of that. Okay. So I'm going to restart these Argo and Grafana services first and foremost. Okay. And then next thing, I'm going to turn on one little thing we need. This is just updating a, a config map for us. Oh, let me make this a lot bigger. Sorry. Hopefully that's readable. Um, before we actually do this, this is what the Canary spec looks like. So it's got a kind Canary. Um, we're targeting uh, the demo API and the demo namespace. Um, this is the Canary analysis that we're going to run here. So um, this is going to be a minute. It's going to be very quick. Um, we have a max weight of 50%, so we're going to go all the way up to 50%. And if everything looks good, then we'll route all the traffic back. So ex exactly what we just showed. We're going to check these two metrics, the request sec uh, success rate and request duration. Um, we've got some uh, thresholds in there. Our step weight is going to be 25%, so 25 and 50. Um, and we define a few other things uh, about the mesh itself and then the deployment that we're targeting. So I mentioned uh, that the um, API just returns its version. And so I'll, I'll again, I'll point, point forward the demo service here and we can take a look at it. So uh, what you see is a running 30-second count of what's coming back from the demo API. In this case, everything is on version 1.0. See about 60 requests. 100% of the traffic is on version uh, 1. But let's update that spec. So I have a little, oops. I have a little script here that all it does is run a single sed command that basically <laughs> replaces version one with version two um, and then pushes that up to the atlas. Um, so I have the atlas sitting here um, for this particular repo. So we can just run this update image. So the first thing it did was get pull, pull down all those changes, updated that file. Now, Argo would pick up that change pretty quickly, but I'm going to go ahead, because I'm impatient, and uh, sync it. That looked like Argo failed. One second. There we go. It probably already picked it up at this point, but we'll make sure. And then the next thing I'm going to do is uh, actually watch tail the canary log. So um, this just says uh, describe the canary demo API and give me the last 15 logs of it. Um, those will actually be the events. Um, and so you can see immediately that Flagger has detected a new version and is scaling up your original, the demo API deployment right now. So we'll wait for those pods to roll out. Um, if we check what's going on, we can still see our version is on 1.0. So the, okay, so it's finished rolling that out. It's now adjusted 25% uh, of the way. So we should start seeing some traffic on version 2.0, which we do see now. Um, and we start seeing some traffic coming through Grafana as well. So it's slowly shifting traffic over um, to the Canary. So we've made it now to 50%. Again, this is going to be a pretty fast one. Um, it was successful, so now it's copying the demo API template over to the primary one. Um, and once it completes that, um, so it's waiting for the primary to roll out here. Once it completes that, then it'll shift all the traffic to the primary. Um, and uh, we'll see this version start to shift directly. So we're ho hovering right around 50% now uh, for both versions and both Grafana and our little uh, table. Waiting for things to roll out still. Still about 50% for both, which is what we'd expect. About 50% for incoming request volume and success rate as well. 
Almost there, sorry guys. Yep. Should be pretty close here. We can sort of, uh, while we're waiting for that. Oh. We're getting pretty close. <laughs> sometimes this takes, sometimes this is really quick, and sometimes it takes a little second. Okay, so it's finished. Now it's gonna shift all the traffic to the primary. So we should see version 1.0 start to fall off very quickly, version 2.0 take over. Okay, now we're all the way over. Same thing, has, uh, starting to shift back over here in Grafana. Um, these will start to fall off. Um, and the promotion is actually complete at this point, so we've done the Canary deployment successfully. Um, so we can stop this. The one other thing um, I thought would be interesting to take a look at is the actual components that were deployed. So we did everything in the demo namespace, so we can shift over to that namespace and then just take a look at everything that's there. So you can see all of the sort of virtual services and nodes that were spun up here um, were the, are the ones we, we, we talked about and discussed. Uh, but this is a good way to sort of see what's going on and what's actually getting deployed. Um, in this particular case, you can see the virtual nodes, the mesh, the virtual service, um, the replica sets, and everything that was deployed there. And so, yes, yeah, so the canary traffic has now completely gone off. We're back to the regular request volume. Um, and then let me update there, turn off. The... And that's it. Okay, so always like to end with a quote from our founder, Truett Cathy, no goal is too high if you climb with care and confidence. This is a quote that's been particularly meaningful to the digital team. One of our conference rooms is actually named Climb With Care. And you can follow us on Medium at medium.com at Chick-fil-A tech blog and github.com slash Chick-fil-A. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to show us that. Um, we are going to have some time for a Q&A. Um, uh, I kind of selfishly want to ask a couple questions first, so please forgive me. Um, my first question is, why is Chick-fil-A's breakfast not more popular? I was looking at that graph, it, the chicken I know, I, and biscuits. I can't answer that one. Chick-fil-A <laughs> chicken biscuits for breakfast are amazing, so if you haven't had them, please try them. OK, more of a serious question. Um, what were the easiest, and then conversely, what were the most challenging aspects of getting up and running with AppMesh and EKS at Chick-fil-A? Yeah, so uh, really that demo that I showed there represented about a day and a half of work of getting things deployed and up and running on, with AppMesh, and that was really surprising for us. We did take a look at other service meshes, and um, they were much more uh, intense in terms of getting them to a production deployment, um, where AppMesh was sort of just a single shot deployment that we got running and felt comfortable about where it was and we were able to show something of value very quickly. Um, the, most, the more challenging aspects of it were sort of getting it connected, completely integrated in with our system. So we're running Prometheus Operator, as I said, um, and configuring the operator to work with Flagger took a little bit of work, but um, that was really sort of tinking around the edges. But uh, some of those are the most time-consuming aspects of it. So. <laughs> sure. Um, I have one more question. Um, yeah. While I'm asking this question, if any of you have questions, please make your way to one of the microphones, and that way we can get you on the video recording. My last question is, quite simply, what are Chick-fil-A's future plans with AppMesh? Yeah, so we're, I think we're really excited um, to uh, have the monitoring that you showed in place. Um, I think that would give us much better insight than we have now. 
um, in terms of what's going on within our service architecture or service uh, ecosystem. Um, in addition, I really like the idea of being able to better align our backend services with our team structure. Um, so I think that the ability to align the teams with the actual engineering backends um, is always something we struggle with a little bit. Um, and uh, I think being able to ship that easily and quickly to different teams is, is a big component. And the other thing is abstracting away the common components. So if we can have security taken completely by app mesh and done in a consistent fashion, um, you know, n n no mistakes there, um, that would be fantastic. So. Awesome. Let's start over here. Yeah. So I was wondering, uh, what process did you go through when analyzing App Mesh? Why did you choose it over any of the on other Envoy-based uh, service meshes, such as Istio? And what advantages did you actually realize out of using uh, App Mesh? Yeah, so um, we, did, we did evaluate Istio um, as well. Um, and it sort of went back to what I was mentioning uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, the service, or the App Mesh deployment uh, which is much more straightforward. So again, that was about a day and a half of work there. Um, the ISO deployment uh, was an order of magnitude more than that to get it up and running, and we still didn't feel like we had all the pieces uh, completely in place. Um, so it, it really was just a good fit into our ecosystem and a very smooth deployment. Over here. So in the system that I currently work with, we've got a reverse proxy that fronts all of our, our single API with microservices behind it. How do you deal with that sort of ingest pattern, uh, well, sort of that interface to the outside world with AppMesh? Yeah, there's a couple ways to do it today, um, and there's one way that is coming soon. Um, a couple ways you can do it today are you could still provision a traditional ALB, for example, and route to the individual endpoints that are still proxied by Envoy, and then you can still just facilitate that same egress traffic out of there. Um, the second way is actually still the first one, and then there's, there's another open source project called Glue, um, which will automatically set this up for you, provides custom resource definitions um, very similar to um, Flagger and uh, what AppMesh provides, and so you can get much more of a declarative managed experience that way. The third way that's coming soon is we're actually building our own managed ingress capability. Um, I shouldn't say managed, it's probably not the right word. Um, really what we will do is we will build a, a, allow you to build a fleet of envoys and we'll configure them to actually do that ingress. And instead of routing to individual virtual nodes, that gateway will route to other virtual services based off of matching criteria that you define. Still over here? Yeah, so I had similar questions, so you already answered it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the secondary question is, uh, uh, I wanted to understand exactly the Flagger and uh, AppMesh, uh, how they are working together. Because if I correctly understood it, uh, during the demo, this uh, HPA uh, was getting the replica uh, terminated, right? From zero to one for, the, for this uh, primary release, right? So was it done by Flagger or by Service Mesh or by something completely different? Uh, exactly. So it was done by Flagger orchestrating app okay. mesh components. Okay, so Flagger was doing this orchestration, right? That's okay. correct, yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I think that's a, it's a big theme with us. We try, as you sort of saw, uh, the, that entire stack is uh, yes. the best of, what well, we feel like it's best in breed for open source um, tooling, and so we're sort of standing on the shoulders of open source giants um, and, uh, you know, using their tooling. So, so you still had two deployments, and the flagger was just manipulating the, uh, at the final end of the canary release, flagger was just reducing the number of uh, pods, right? That, there's two deployments, that's right, and flagger spins up the primary one for you, uh -huh. and then you, you really only need to worry about your original one, that's what you're deploying to, um, and so yes, but the, there are, it copies, the first thing it does is copy the, the deployment, the demo API to demo API primary. Okay, thanks. Yeah. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Let's go over here. Yes, hi. Uh, this question is for, um, what was your name again, from Chick-fil-A? Christopher. Christopher. Um, the CLI looks pretty exciting. Uh, what technology did you use to create the CLI? I'm curious. Uh, so uh, the prototype, which I'm actually running now, was written in Python. Uh, we are currently in the process of rewriting it into Go to better fit the general ecosystem and our, um, some tooling we have on our side as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's Python with a transition to Go happening right now. Yeah. A, a quick second question: yeah. uh, Are you guys using encryption and end encryption with App Mesh, or 
so I think that would be something exciting we would definitely want to do um, in the future. So Yeah, encryption's currently in our preview channel. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's sort yeah. of a beta channel that everyone yeah, yeah. Can, can use. Um, and that is with uh, AWS Certificate Manager Managed Certificates. That will graduate to GA in just a few weeks from now. Um, and then we're also working on a secondary path, which is allowing you to bring your own certificates through a file system reference or a local domain socket that's hosting a secret discovery service for Envoy. Okay, thank you. Yep. Uh, that's all the time we have for questions. Um, we are happy to continue to answer questions out in the hall. So if you still have something, please meet us out there. And thank you for coming. Yes. Please fill out the session survey. Have a good night.